was there any point in the King's speech? Well, if you like watching people walk backwards, I guess it would really have worked for you. Um, but if you take the pomp ceremony and all the rest of it out, what are you left with? The idea that we will become more energy secure as a country because we've got more annual oil and gas licenses, really? Um, or that somehow there can be a crackdown on law and order where any more people are sent to jail for a longer period because our jails are 1000% full. Um, it's as if everything flies in the face of actual facts and the information and evidence supplied by little people. Uh, indeed, the COVID inquiry rather bears that out. So we discuss all of that. We look as well at Labour's ongoing problems with its stance on uh, Israel-Gaza. Uh, we look as well at the fireworks problems that emerged in Scotland over the last few days and much more. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, Joms, and welcome to this week's Leslie the Big podcast. And we're going to begin with a big thank you to Chris, who came off the bench last week, a substitute who, who stood in for me while I was, I was, if you're going to continue the football analogy, I was on the physio's treatment table, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. Right. But no, yes, but I, I'm back. And, and no, not only thanks to Chris, but thanks to everyone who got in touch uh, uh, to to offer the sympathy for what is the now known as the the memorial Joyce's uh, Ratley left lung, so uh, just a, a wee bit there and the, the super duper strength uh, antibiotics kicked in. No need for steroids this time, so which is for which I'm thankful. Uh, and I don't know if I've said this before, but the laugh in my family is that one of my members of my family says, "I know, but Grandpa McDonald." He suffered with his chest for years and years and years and years, you know, and he had a bad chest. He says, aye, but he was gassed twice on the Western Front in 1916. So, I mean, I haven't had to... <laughs> yeah, uh, I, don't, not... don't laugh, Pat. I can hear it beginning yeah. to come in again when you laugh. But anyway, yeah. it's great that you're you're back. And it's strange because you were saying that actually you have, you know, previous years this thing has come back yeah. almost exactly the same week. I just wonder if it, it there was some other... Guys I've spoken to who had similar kind of very constrained chest thing that just seemed to kick in as soon as that big rain kind of thing happened. Oh, but anyway, right. it's not, uh, presumably, it's not as up for us to sort of sit and try and second no. guess the climatic conditions and impacts on health stuffy. But anyway, great that you're back. Yeah, and uh, I, I returned, I mean, with bits and pieces, I mean, uh, but today we, we sat ourselves down, uh, Leslie, to listen to the King's speech. Because I can't bear uh, watching people walk backwards. Oh, well, and they did walk backwards, yes, and the heads were bowed and it was all all the furpery. And it was, it's a funny kind of thing, but it's easy for, some, for, for us to try and say, oh, it's just a fancy dress parade. It's all Ruritanian nonsense. But actually, at its core, with the uh, mythology attached to this, going back into the mists of time and the, the tradition, this actually embeds the whole concept of the monarch in parliament, parliamentary sovereignty, and should stand as a clear reminder to everyone of the position of the monarchy within the hierarchical structure in the in the UK, and also the dominant role of uh, Westminster within that framework, embedded in parliamentary sovereignty and the whole thing. Oh, let's take the let's take the mace out of here and take it in there, and the king comes in, and uh, the the frippery is actually really, really significant. And and I watched, um, it was uh, Chris Bryant, who liked the tradition initially, he said he thought it was quite attractive. Someone named 
Tory clone that, that, that was there. So we thought this goes back into the mists of time, then to be reminded that some of the stuff he was seeing was actually invented in, in the 2000s, you know, when they introduced certain elements of it. And Kirsty Blackman, who was on. And Kirsty actually made a very, very good point that, w- that wasn't this inappropriate at a time when people are suffering for the cost of living crisis, etc. But she, she said that she, I suppose she actually had to operate within the framework of I can't offend too many people. And coming up with straightforward Republican sentiments, and I, I don't know whether she's a Republican or not, but it, it was that kind of feeling that I got that she was having to soft soap what she was having to say because the uh, the embedded nature of the traditions of the monarchy and uh, parliamentary sovereignty um, and the whole way that that is just completely embedded into UK democracy. And it may be one of those institutions, Leslie, that in the future we will not be allowed to criticise or critique because we might be deemed to be extremists. Yeah, if, bring uh, that on, honestly. I mean, you know, I, I can't remember quite who floated this one. I don't know if it was some pal of Suella, you know, mm-hmm homelessness is a chosen sort of you know lifestyle yeah. option braverman which also didn't find any sort of outing in the in the king's speech today so that that looks like that's caused enough of a sort of sharp and mm. take of breath even on tory benches that it's kind of just been quietly doofed yeah if they want to bring in something that makes it some sort of offense to kind of undermine the integrity of the uk absolutely bring it on i'm sure that will get some of the most vigorous marches has been for for a very long time in scotland actually but I was trying to actually find, which as you were talking, I should have found this, looked this up before, um, because, I mean, sure, that with all the kind of significance of the of the kind of, of parliamentary sovereignty and all that, but, but the other point that Tom Nairn made, and there's a big conference coming up on this soon, so this is a bit of a, well, it's sort of a plug for it, but it kind of shows you how relevant this guy was. The late Tom Nairn wrote fabulous books, one of which, The Enchanted Glass, Britain and Its Monarchy, Um is basically talking about the way that what looks like this sort of amusing relic of feudalism, it kind of persuades the, the persuades the public to remain in a state of national backwardness. Mm. And it's you know it's not this is why I won't even watch it because it feels like it's just encouraging all this kind of ooing and eyeing and oh what yeah. exactly was the thing about black rod again and you know oh my god you know Camilla and Charles have entered through <gasps> everybody's sitting down now separate doors I mean you know is this what we're reduced to and because people almost are kind of at a loss to say anything about the politics and the disappointment of you know yeah another yeah. speech that doesn't going to tackle anything and, you know, everyone looking at whether King Charles looks like he's a bit hacked off having to talk about new oil and gas licenses when he's a bit of an eco boy, um, you know, or that he sat down and he didn't stand up. So it didn't look like he was giving it welly. So he wasn't really doing it as well. Ah, oh, for crying in a yeah. bucket, you know, it is all ridiculous. Um, however, obviously, within all of that, there is there is the the kind of content of what's been said. And I mean, this first of all, the annual oil and gas licenses. Now, I'll quite grant you, I haven't actually spent a very long time sort of surfing the Web to try and find out what this is meant to do for us. But yeah, exactly. it, it actually completely just quite apart from, you know, the fact we, we've gone on about this enough that people will appreciate I mean, even the energy secretaries had to concede that mm-hmm. the plans won't bring down household energy bills. <laughs> right. OK. But what 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 difference at all would annual licensing do? Because, I mean, people are, 
these guys are putting out presumably pretty large investments in terms of oil and gas license, you know, exploration. I'm not saying this on a sort of particularly sympathetic point of view, but just in a sort of practical point of view. You're hardly going to be, you know, you're hardly going to be pushing the boat out to, to do exploration on an annual basis. Am I just missing something? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's, no. I've got to be missing something because, you know, because, it, you know, it, nobody else seems to pick this up particularly. And there may be obviously some kind of, you know, complication within it all. But I mean, quite apart from that, it's not going to bring down household energy bills. They've 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 quietly the Tories have quietly sort of massaged the claim so that it's not that sorry chaps and chapesses, um, but it is that it's going to give us more energy security. Yeah. I don't know how often I would love to know if I could see all the hands of everybody listening to this right now. How many of you anybody left that's even vaguely sentient buys this nonsense? You know that obviously it's private companies that go and um, do the exploration. They sell the oil and gas on to the highest bidder on the international market. How does that improve our oil, our, our energy security? It's just like I'm, I'm really waiting. Well, I'm sort of not actually, but, you know, I would be mildly interested to see if somebody just starts to really get stuck into this in the debate that will follow after, you know, after this, after lunchtime, um, just specifically on what it would take to be energy secure and actually having... <laughs> The, the the film about Denmark, which has just just been finished, um, and I'm trying to get it put into to cinemas at the moment as the sort of first priority to see if that works. So we're just holding back from putting it online for the wee minute, just to see if that you know if that annoys mm-hmm. cinemas enough that the idea that the you know that it's out there online and gosh why would people bother to come see it? Uh, I'll know in about another week whether or not it's going to be any factor or not in it. So however. You know, the, the most energy uh, self, so self-sufficient and sustainable and secure country in the OECD is Denmark, which decided 50 years ago in response to the OPEC oil crisis that it would never put itself at, to the mercy of, you know, foreign whatever again. Um, by then deciding to keep the oil and gas prices really high in Denmark, making the importation of cars almost prohibitively expensive and shifting their society absolutely wholesale to district heating. I don't know if I need to say this louder for Mm -hmm. the SNP and Greens. That's district heating um, and uh, public transport. And it's it's taken them. That's 50 years. And because they have a coalition government, because they have a proportional parliament, like every normal freaking country on earth, really, um, they have all stood by the agreements that previous coalitions um, have made so that that policy has managed to keep going for 50 years. And that 50 years of having the same outlook towards oil and gas, and they've now got a commitment to stop all oil and gas production by 2050 at the absolute outside, but it will end. That commitment is something that makes Denmark investable. Because everybody knows where they stand with Denmark. They've got long term plans that every single party in their government is signed up to because it's been involved in. And that's what creates an energy secure country, not the nonsense that we're going through here, predicated on basically one by-election where it looks as if some small aspect of uh, low emission zones in London 
caused an unexpected upset and taught the Tories to hang on to a seat. And on the basis of that nakedly short term electoral expedient kind of moment, they are now extrapolating uh, uh, policies for the UK and for Scotland then, which will take us absolutely pitching into um, energy nightmares. Uh, So, yeah. Fine, you know, I'm not sure quite if, if any analysis will be as will be particularly, you know, swinging on this as it should be. But I would love to see somebody absolutely stick the boot in. Yeah, because it was the, the whole thing was the I, I can't remember. I mean, it was four or five times it was about all about taking long term decisions and long term planning through the King's speech, and that aspect of it that you said about well, well, annual bit thing. Well, wait a minute, where does this fit in? And again, even if you're operating in the framework of people making long or making commercial decisions, what commercial enterprises require, what business always talks about is stability and be able to look forward and knowing that things are going to be stable in order they can make commercial decisions. Because you just hope at some point capitalism starts to intervene to actually say, look, come on, we've got to get on with this uh, and get moving towards a green economy because that's where we're investing. But if you don't give them the climate to do that, you know, you're asking them to act ethically, which doesn't seem to be at the forefront of most people's minds on that. The the other thing that came across, there was a, of course, there was the whole thing about promote the integrity of the union. But then this bit, strengthen the social fabric of the UK. Wait, what the heck does that actually mean? I'd like to, to see what, what do you mean by that, by strengthening the social fabric of the UK? Reform welfare. Now, that was a very, I mean, when I, I don't know what you feel like, Leslie, when I hear that, reform welfare, I'm immediately thinking, ah, uh, we're not going to pay you as much as you actually really need to, to live on. And what we're going to do is we're going to crack down on perceived welfare, uh, welfare fraud, etc. And we're going to crack down on people. And the other aspect of it was get them back into work. Well, when the, we actually analyse the fact that significant numbers of people who are on universal credit and receiving welfare who are actually in work, you know, let's mm. make work pay. But that that was the, that was the thing there that, I don't know how you feel about strengthening the social fabric of the UK. Mm. You know, what, you know, what? Just wait to see what that actually turns. You know, because the thing is, it's like we're all sitting, intelligent people, focusing our minds on people who do not give a toss. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is just just completely strikes me since I know we're leaping around here and you're going to come on to this a bit <laughs> later. But the COVID inquiry, for example, yeah. there was there was, you know, this this bit where the COVID inquiry was told that. Boris Johnson basically launched Eat Out to Help Out without scientific advice on its yep. potential impact. And the guy who was the deputy principal blah, 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 to Johnson's when he was prime minister said there had been no direct analysis of the policy. Yeah. Now, ain't that absolutely the size of it? You know, here's all these kind of whole these apparatuses or apparati of of scientific structure as if the people at the at the top of the pyramid looked at it you know all these efforts made all these chief scientific officers all these people who've been knighted and made barons and sirs and all the rest of them and actually it it matters not a jot what effort they've put in to try and devise you know go through all these structures because it's a bit like you know back in the day i always used to think when you were trying to you know a bairn trying to hit the pedestrian crossing to go across the lights it sort of struck me that the, the the button was there but it was probably disconnected inside you know, it just gave you the feeling that you had some control over the traffic yeah. flow, but it just did what it was going to do anyway. 
that's where we are. So all this stuff, you know, whatever they've come up with here about social strategy, whatever, whatever, it's all just there to sort of it has got it's no grounding in any kind of evidence. I mean, if we're to, to just move on to another thing in the in the King's speech, which is this tougher, tougher prison sentences. I mean, again, yes. this is obviously playing to the Tory base. Um, and it's it's basically saying, yeah, that killers, uh, you know, rapists. Um, other serious sexual offenders will not get early discharge from prison sentences. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, most people will say, well, actually, you know, that's probably pretty much fair enough. The question with all of that is, you, you know, if people are basically there's now, now going to have more, there will now be more whole life orders. So there will be more people basically spending their entire life in jail if this goes ahead. Um, and other plans to to sort of deal with um, with with criminals, where will they go? Yeah. Because if you start to look at, I mean, this is the other thing about just no match whatsoever with the reality that the little people running stuff, you know, sir, whoever it is that runs the chief inspector of prisons or whatever, um, it is basically quite extraordinary. I mean, this same government, right, last month just. Their justice secretary announced that prisoner prisons would be allowed to release less serious offenders on probation early to relieve overcrowding. Yeah. And that's because the, the whole prison estate in England is now completely over capacity. Um, there was recently a prisoner in Doncaster who was uh, describing being locked up for 23 and a half hours a day with no showers. And that's under what they call a red regime. And that's when there is just not enough staff to basically do anything other than keep just keep prisoners in cells. Two to a cell, maybe more. They were all Victorian uh, prisons, yeah. a lot of them um, constructed in an era where it was all about punishment. And, and you just and a lot of people listening will say, well, this is what this is meant to be about until you start reading the way that some uh, youngsters chucked into uh, this kind of regime. Um, come out actually completely wrecked, you know, yeah. stuck in a, a cell randomly with people that themselves might have big mental health problems and stuck there for any length of time, even just on remand. So that's just like they're innocent. You know, they haven't even gone to a trial yet. This is the level of chaos there is, partly as well because of COVID underfunding, yada, yada, yada. And if it's not just England, actually, um, because, you know, Scotland, there's a very good piece in in Hollywood magazine um, that's talking just uh, a couple of weeks ago that the, the journalist visited Barlini and its uh, occupancy is currently at 140 wow. percent, which is about the same level of over occupancy seen in Rwanda, Libya and Iraq. And, you know, I didn't know this, but in July, an Irish high court judge refused to extradite a 24-year-old to Scotland, pointing to Barlini and citing the real and substantial risk of inhumane or degrading treatment due to a lack of resources for dealing with prisoners' with mental health. So, you know, there's it's fine for everybody to start basically trying to get votes with any sort of move to just keep trying to bang people away. And of course, I'm not saying that there aren't people that need to be kept indoor and locked up for for the you know for the safety of the public mm -hmm. but i mean what when i when i was on the prisons commission a long time ago now 15 years ago or something you know the characteristic of what's happening and that we might pick this up in the fireworks discussion is that is that nuisance behavior is basically turning into criminal sentences 
And that basically is just, you know, that's what's what's absolutely clogging up prisons and not dealing at all with what's happening at the root of any of the these problems. So anyway, back to dear old the King's speech. Yeah, <laughs> fucking right. The Queen's you know, spe- sorry, you're like me. I, it took I'm me a while lapsing actually, back the into Queen's, the Queen again. Queen's speech, yeah. Yeah, but you know, it's 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 the same disconnect. You can come out with all this stuff about you know getting tough on crime and the causes of crime and all this kind of thing, um, but you just haven't got a solution for where to actually put anyone that anyone that works in the real world could recognise as viable. In fact, quite the opposite. It, you know, everything is basically overcrowded. Even the blinking House of Lords is over. You know, mm-hmm. this is still the second largest unelected chamber in the in the world after the people's uh, whatever it is of china it's it's all ludicrous i mean even the king's speech apparently there's too many uh, mps to be able to get into the lords mm-hmm. to hear it but hey that's okay because you know it doesn't really matter does it it doesn't really matter because we're so 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 keen on on just having the pageantry and the you know yeah. all the whatever it doesn't matter if if the actual speech that's meant to be important which will now be the subject of debate for five days in the commons is not heard by the people who are supposed to be debating it of course they can hear it other ways it's recorded you could you know what i mean i know i appreciate yeah. all that but it's just a token of how utterly flying in the face of anything practical Almost everything is about this speech from its delivery uh, to, you know, the two main measures within it, which are seem to be the energy stuff and the things about, you know, tougher sentences. The other aspect of it was as well, when when, when looking at it, when listen, looking at it and listening to it is how much of it is not Scottish based at all. It's nothing to do with us. It's the the, the decision taken about uh, young people, you know, diminishing the age that young people uh, people will be able to buy cigarettes. That's a devolved issue, and I do believe there's cooperation going on there. But that's in the King's speech. Nothing at all to do with Scotland. The introduction of the the advanced British standard, which is combining. A levels with technical qualifications, which sounds a very, very good thing to do to me anyway, but it's not an advanced British standard, it's an advanced English standard, you know, but there we go there. The NHS waiting lists, etc. And and it is that disconnect that I continually feel when looking at these matters uh, between myself and what's been spoken about in, the, in, in Parliament a lot of the time and within the, the, the King's speech as well. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, because the, this discussion that took place, I mean, uh, Nikki Campbell did float the idea when Kirsty Blackman talked about the about the the paraphernalia and the, the hoopla and of it all. And she says, well, it's important to look at fundamentally, was Nikki's, Nikki's statement. And uh, no, that might give people a wee bit of a boost in these troubled times, you know? So Yeah, that, so we have this whole, where do you start? I yeah, mean, this yeah. is the trouble, uh, you know, if you do and, and ever get asked on to these things, it is a real problem because you can see how you're going to be cast on the minute yeah. you, you, know, yeah. you speak because you're going to sound like a miserable, gurning, you yeah. know, Scott, basically, yes. <laughs> uh, for for just not sort of finding the whole thing fan um, and yet you know you can you can be in you can be in tandem with so much public opinion basically, yes. and 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 yet in the moment of of uh, you know TV coverage or whatever, it's as if we've all gone back to the 1950s and everybody's absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing with the <clears throat> with the armistice uh, day. Yes. And, oh, sorry, Armistice Weekend now, apparently. I mean, oh, where well. the hell did that come from? But anyway, yeah. I mean, sh- sure, you know, I, I mean, sh- 
the more the more you look at at kind of past wars and the horrors of them, the more it does leave you speechless with admiration yeah. for anybody who was involved in them and and sort of sadness basically and whatever. Yeah. But um the 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 organisers of the uh. The, the the pro Gaza uh, marches that are happening, the ones that are essentially calling for a ceasefire, have have said that the the marches will not happen until the cenotaph yeah. moments are all over. So there isn't going to be a kind of you know clash of screaming kind of behaviour in the middle of people who are sitting thinking about lost relatives and so on. Um, and yet the point is, for a lot of people, it's extra, it's exactly that connection that's in their mind. Yeah. It's the connection between the horror of wars past that we've experienced and the horror of what we're watching every night. So that, you know, for everybody who, who comes on to the, you know, onto some interview and ends up on the back foot, you know, with somebody saying, but surely, you know, you couldn't possibly have this on on the same day as people are are commemorating the fallen of the last wars and so on. You know, what What can you say? It takes a very spirited person to be able to say, but that's precisely why we can't yeah. have more wars. And that's what we're that's what we're going to be on the streets about. And yet it looks like, you know, there's this discussion about whether there's even going to be moved to try to sort of stop that, which is bound to just it takes the whole thing off what the subject is about then, because it will simply be about the right to hold marches or not hold marches on a day connected to memorials and it's not going to be about what people want to open up which is the the whole question of what the heck is happening in israel and gaza so yes yeah i mean this is people may find this unusual with me i've I've never worn a poppy my my, my grandfather fought 14 to 19 and refused to wear a poppy and became a committed pacifist when he returned from uh russia what we then became the soviet union in 1919 he'd been there with the royal scots with the allied expeditionary force and what he saw um, in 14 to 19 made him a committed pacifist and he it was he refused to wear a poppy and i was he, he didn't talk about it much but what i always do on november the 11th uh, the 11th hour, I always take myself away. And when I was at work, I always took myself away. And the class are often surprised about this. I said, I'm going away to remember, remember what my grandfather and his friends went through. I remember my Uncle Jimmy, who was lost on the Arctic convoys, my Uncle John, who was damaged for the rest of his life uh, 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 and as part of Bomber Command. Uh, you know, and th- that was that was there. But it is that, that, that whole thing. And it, it, these to call these marches hate marches. Of course, there will be people on it whose views I disagree with entirely. Of course, there will be people on here will be will be making excuses for what Hamas did, for which there is no excuse whatsoever. It was a war crime. The taking of hostages and the killing of innocent people is an absolute war crime. But what has what has come come through from that is is the intensification, and it's dug again. It's horrible to talk about the politics here because. I don't. I don't know about you, Leslie. I, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm scrolling through things now. I'm scrolling through things now because it's just so heartbreaking to see these children, and that's the kids that, that, that are there. Um, and I'm scrolling through, and I have the ability to scroll through what people are not being able to scroll through because they're going through it. These are real people. This is not a movie, and the. The, the the tangles, I mean, that the Labour Party has got itself into, and you wrote brilliantly, I think, about David Lamy in your, your recent National article, was a man who, on many issues, I had great respect for. 
And to turn around and say what you did about the, it, it might not be ethically correct uh, to, to, to bomb that refugee camp, but it was... Um, it was a uh, legally well precise what he said precisely was it's wrong to bomb a refugee camp but clearly if there is a military objective it can be legally justifiable which it isn't so just just just, just let that sit for a second folks you know i'm just going to say this again it's wrong to bomb a refugee camp refugee camp but clearly if there's a military objective it can be legally justifiable I mean, I, you know, when, when I heard, OK, Keir Starmer and his previous comments about, yeah, it was kind of Israel had the right to withhold fuel, water and food from from Gaza. You could almost see as he was saying it, actually, that he sort of, yeah, he knew he'd just really gone probably too far. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but he'd gone there and he's not stupid and he knew he'd be asked and he must have pre-thought it. So it was a statement of intent. And it has not, you know, despite all the attempts to kind of shilly shally around with it, it really hasn't been retracted. But David Lammy, I mean, you know, for for people who don't, you know, not old enough to have just sort of watched David Lammy through through time, I think he he might have been the first actually. I mean, might have been the first black barrister actually in England, but he was certainly educated in Harvard. Um, he was very outspoken in, in his assault on Brexiteers. He likened uh, uh, the cheerleaders of the cause uh, in the European research group to Nazis, according to the Financial Times. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't sort of mince his words. He's attacked, uh, he attacked comic relief for having a white saviour mentality. Mm-hmm. People might remember that, which, you know, was tough to hear, but, you know, brought about a pretty massive change, actually, in the way that comic relief operates. Um you know, he was furious with Suella Braverman. Well, who wasn't, basically, but particularly this year when he said she had spat on the victims of Windrush all over again by deciding against a migrants commissioner. You know, like, so here we are. We're really serious about this, but we're not really going to appoint anybody to make sure that these problems are resolved. He wanted uh, the people uh, who were responsible for Grenfell Tower prosecuted for a crime of epic proportions. He told The Guardian that Roots by Alex Haley had changed his life as a teenager, the first time he understood what it was meant to be the descendant of slaves. And amazingly, the last book, he was asked the last book that made you cry, it was The Kite Runner by mm-hmm. Khaled Hosseini, Hosseini uh, which is a story of two young boys in Kabul trying to win a, a kite fitting, fighting tournament. It's a very poignant read. And actually, also, just while we're at it, um, a couple of years ago, he revealed that his dad had struggled with alcoholism and homelessness for periods of his life. And that's what had prompted him to campaign for two decades, basically, as Labour MP for Tottenham on that, on both those subjects. So, you know, these are just some of the things that I remember of him. I mean, he very, very rarely misses when he's when he's tweeting. He's usually absolutely spot on in ways that. If you were not uh, in Scotland and not an independent supporter, you'd probably have a lot of time for this guy. Mm -hmm. He got a 76% vote share in Tottenham in 2019. So that reflects exactly how popular he is, you know, back home. And I would say that credibility has gone. I don't know what, you know, is happening on the streets of Tottenham, but I would say, you know, completely and permanently. Yeah. Because, you, you you know, the idea that just in case anyone needs reminding that, you know, Israel had decided to bomb the Jabalia refugee camp. And at the time that I was writing, it had happened the previous night 
And then there was an argument about how many hundreds were killed, yeah. you know, as if we were talking about widgets. And actually, as I was writing, the, the, the bombing began again. So, so basically, the refugee camp was being bombed again. Now, the Israelis say um, that Hamas, quite cynically, have got networks of of their of themselves, basically, beneath the refugee camps, beneath mosques, which is kind of then what brings you to the problem of. So let's just get to the crux of that then. If if your enemy um, is sitting behind a child, you can kill the child. Yeah. And see, like, I, I don't know, you know, whether that's even legally, you know, in war crimes terms, I don't know if that's OK. But, you know, to most people, that's kind of really problematic. And then it's not just one child. You know, there's 10,000 people have been apparently killed in Gaza now since this all began. And half of them are children. So it's 5,000 children. And it doesn't matter. The other point is you get to verify whether you actually succeeded in 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 any of your war aims. Yeah. So, you know, this is not even that it's a horrible question of trying to gauge the worth of the of the children's lives that stand, unfortunately, in the on the route to a network of Hamas tunnels. It's that, you know, we have no way of verifying if there was indeed any Hamas casualties as a result of these deaths. Yeah. And I mean, to sort of put yourself into the frame of that um you, you know, but and that's what David Lammy actually said. You know, so that it, it's kind of it, it really is jaw dropping because if if Keir Starmer hadn't already brought the Labour Party into, I mean, we discussed this last week with Chris, and again, a very good piece that George Caravan had written, had written looking at opinion polling along um, around Muslim communities, which is suggesting, well, you know, kind of absolute fury basically. But, you know, to send David Lammy essentially out to have to reiterate those lines when people understand completely the kind of background this guy has. I mean, that was really, really, I thought, pretty horrifying. Yeah, because uh, what I did was I, I, I looked up the United Nations definitions of war crimes and taking horses, as you said, is one of them. But intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such an attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians is a war crime. It's not legally justifiable. Yeah. It's a war crime. Mm -hmm. It's written there in the United Nations. And, you know, what the, the, the thing that's that's coming through with this, again, with Suella Braverman's reference to, to hate marches, and the complete conflation that's gone on between people who are protesting about the current government of Israel, which is when you read about who Likud are in coalition with, and they're, they're an appalling group of far-right anti-Arab racist parties. That's what they are. And if you're looking for this phrase from the river to the sea, members of that coalition government have stated quite clearly that Israel should exist from the river to the sea. That's the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. That is completely justifiable to 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 cleanse Gaza of uh, Palestinians, cleanse the West Bank of Palestinians. And Netanyahu, this has been his Falkland moment, if you like, because he was in significant difficulties within Israel for all sorts of policies to do with the fact of the, the politicisation of the judicial system, for example. And there are, there are thousands upon thousands of Israelis who are absolutely appalled by the behaviour of 
that government. Similarly, over here, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews who object to this conflation of Zionism, Israel and Judaism. And for example, uh, Yale Khan, who was arrested, I don't know if you saw that, she was arrested for carrying a poster which actually said that uh, my family were exterminated by European Nazis. Now, the Israeli ambassador defends uh, exterminating Palestinian families, stop the genocide of Gaza. That's what she was, actually she was arrested for. 24 hours she was in, she was in custody. She refused to eat or drink in that time period and was released without charge. Who then, and she went immediately and started chanting outside. But you have people like Alexei Sale, you have people like Michael Rosen. You have got thousands of Jewish people, Jews against genocide, protesting about what's going on here. And this this whole claim of anti-Semitism, which has been derived and taken from the campaign against Jeremy Corbyn, which was mm. carried out by the right in the Labour Party. And Lamy ought to be ashamed of himself as a barrister. He really ought to be. And he ought to be ashamed of himself as a human being. And these people actually should stop. And I'm going to forget about the legal eye bit of it. If you can actually tolerate to see what's going on with these innocents are being slaughtered, and I can, you can see what's coming in that there will be a, another Nakba, because Netanyahu said this morning, yeah, you know, what's going to happen afterwards? Well, Israel will, uh, we, we, we'll, we'll take over security for Gaza. You know what that's going to be. You know what it's going to be. They're going to, they're going to ethnically cleanse Gaza. I hate to say it, what's left of Gaza is going to be ethnically cleansed. And the 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 other thing about it that's becoming absolutely apparent is the way that Netanyahu quite clearly when talked back in 2019, I think it was, is quoted as saying, because of the the, the deliberate attempt to undermine uh, Fatah on the West Bank, because Fatah is the remnants of the, the political wing of the PLO who actually came to the Oslo Accord. Uh, way back, Clinton, Rabin and Arafat, the Oslo Accords, which have now been wiped aside. They were attempting to accommodate. He wanted to undermine Fatah and said that Hamas is the best way to do it. So it's a it's an appalling, an appalling situation. Mm. And what we see now is the fact that whatever Biden says goes for the Labour Party. But it'll be interesting to see what happens, because I think the SNP may be attempting to bring forward through some mechanism, through an emergency debate or an amendment to the King's speech, or there'll be an opposition day debate, debate where they will attempt, where there may be support from front benchers and at least a third of the 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 backbench Labour Party in in the Commons to actually call for an immediate ceasefire. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yes, indeed. And I mean, just just on that again, something I mentioned in the column was um, one of our, our own uh, Scotch guy Olaf Stando, who is yes, uh, you know. He describes himself as a Jewish yeser who hails from Poland. He lost relatives during the Holocaust. And he was watching um, Politics Live, where Joe Coburn, the host, yeah. um, was was they did some film of a sit-in at Liverpool Street Station um, with a crowd calling for a ceasefire. Now, she observed during the programme and that there's a quote that the Jewish community, maybe as a whole, feels very intimidated by the crowd chanting ceasefire at Liverpool Street Station. And Olaf came on Twitter to point out that she'd failed to mention the sit-in was co-organised by Jewish groups. 
Yes. So this is what's happening now is just this kind of knee jerk um, kind of connection of a whole lot of different things. I mean, just terror of actually having to inch your way towards the reality of what's going on and how incredibly difficult this will be to sort out. But the thing that keeps striking me in all of this is that, you know, people will say quite and it's true that Hamas came on very quickly and said they would have done the whole thing all over again, that they will continue to attack Israel and they don't think the state of Israel should exist. Now, there was a fascinating piece actually on the world tonight um, about four or five days ago with a woman uh, who was a professor from Princeton. I forget her name. And this uh, institute that she was part of had done an awful lot of survey work within Gaza and found that basically about 23 percent of people in Gaza support Hamas. Yeah. Um, that in fact, strangely enough, the, the numbers supporting Hamas drops during periods of peace, mostly because then people feel somewhat emboldened to be able to criticize the way that Hamas is running the territory when it isn't dealing with the problems of mm-hmm. basically war. Um, and th- there was there was greater support for Fatah actually in in Gaza than Hamas. It was true too that people in that survey said that they felt so intimidated by Hamas that um, they felt freer to say in this survey what they actually thought than what they would you know be saying kind of on the ground. But like what the, all of this kind of puts together is when when anybody's standing up and saying you know Hamas will not accept this that or the next thing. What about the people of Gaza? Because what we're we're saying constantly is the Israelis versus Hamas. It's Gaza. You know, there yeah. are people there who have not got the, the the position. And you can go through the whole. I think now we've been reinformed about the whole sorry, horrible history, basically, in which the British state has been heavily complicit in turning the the Middle East into what it is today and um, essentially making the Palestinians as a stateless people. Um, So there's, you know, standing back from it as you do when you can, when you're outside any um, situation like this, it just seems really obvious that somebody's going to have to get to the the nub of this. And I was speaking to a friend, um, a good friend who's Jewish, and she was saying it something really stuck with me. She said, you know, this this whole territory is an oven. And, you know, and just in, in terms of climate change, mm-hmm. it's that's why the water in the place is so important. Um, it's a really, really tough place to live uh, so that if, if people are able to take their heads back and look from this, I mean, I don't know what you would say the solution is. And of course, uh, people, whether they, you know, <laughs> whether they think they're living in a kind of almost unsustainable environment, it's still one that they call home. And, you know, generations of their families have died to defend the right to live in. So it would take an enormous amount of of uh, investment of time by, you know, by, by the world, basically, to try to inch towards anything that, that creates some sort of solution. And right at the moment with the amount of anger there is in Israel that still is unabated. And, um, you know, as I think people will think when they, they, they watch reports, 
it it just it, it is it is completely kind of it's not going to accept any of the sort of whataboutery. It's not going to look in any kind way a lot of it at the kind of hurt and damage and death that's being committed in Gaza. It's simply we cannot live with Hamas at our side, <laughs> and whatever is needed to, even though in any other walk of life these people would be smart enough to see that you know, guns beget guns, that violence begets violence. And yet just in this moment in, in Israel, people are absolutely gripped, organized, fundraising. It's it's incre- an incredible effort that's come into one mission, which is to get their guys into Gaza and just kill whoever's in the way to get, you know, to get these Hamas guys dead. So... Anyway, yeah. I mean, dear knows where we are, but it's a lot, lot more complicated than simply the sort of appalling statements, really, that it, it's not just the lack of humanity and the things that Keir Starmer and David Lammy have said. It's that they just don't want to get their, their hands dirty. You know, they just don't really want to get into the complexity of all of this. And they absolutely, their only priority is to not look like Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah. In the face of, you know, you can't have that, you you know, in the same way as we kind of criticise the Tories for changing their entire strategy for the whole future of energy in the United Kingdom based on one by-election. Um, we've now got the next government, because it will be, um, deciding its for stance in foreign policy, how seriously it's taken across the world and, and whether or not it has now antagonised the whole Muslim community within Britain and a wider, uh, based on simply trying not to look like Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, I mean, and it's just that the other thing that's unleashed as well, I don't know if you saw Douglas Murray, uh, the spectator, uh, when the, I think it was 11 councillors resigned in Burnley. And, and I mean, there have been hundreds of councillors resigned right mm. across the UK. He said that his quote was, Councillor Afra Siab Anwar is among those to resign. Amazing. Can you give us the names of the other noble councillors? We'd love to know if they're similarly solid Burnley men. And there we have. That's that's what we've got the ability. That's what's happening out of this is the barely disguised Islamophobia. And I, I noticed there was an article written that said Labour could survive losing the Muslim vote. Well, can Labour survive if it loses the votes of those people in England who are disgusted with the Labour Party stance on Gaza? Yeah, you know, or just, they don't just happen to be Muslim. Yeah, and and potentially, without wishing to you know politicise this massively, there still is a very distinctively different stance being taken by Hamza Yusuf in Scotland. Absolutely. And I yeah. mean, at the same time, of all this you know mealy mouth stuff was coming from Labour. That same day, Hamza Yusuf had said, "I am sorry to those innocent men, women, and children in Jabalia refugee camp that the world could not protect you." This blatant disregard for human life must be condemned unequivocally. Do not let any more children die. We need an immediate ceasefire, nothing less. And, you know, that statement was the, at the point where I saw it was had been retweeted 75,000 times. So that, you know, the, the stance that he's taking, which again on this question of the uh, the, the march on Sunday, uh, it, it, you know, n- after the Cenotaph event, I mean, everybody else has fallen over themselves to say, oh, yeah, it's appalling. We shouldn't run the risk of this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, he's come straight out and said, um, I, you know, I think people should have the right to protest and this is too important. You know, he he really has carved out um, 
a quite distinctive kind of position on all of this. I'm sure an awful lot, I'm not not in a nasty or sort of one size yeah. right, one size wrong, childish kind of way, um, but just a, a sort of general stance on all of this that I think a lot of people would feel a lot happier with, basically. And hats off to Baroness Saeed Awazi, who I think has done a remarkable job, and she's a Conservative peer. Awazi was a Conservative government minister who has absolutely been in, following the same line as Hamza Youssef. I think she's been remarkable in her response and remarkable in any time I've seen her interviewed. Yeah. Congratulations yeah, she's, to her. She's, been, she's had a journey and a half uh, from, yeah. from the days that she was part of the sort of Tory cabinet. But just one last thing to say, I, mm-hmm. I went to, um, there was a Scottish CND organised event on in Glasgow last weekend mm-hmm. um, called the Festival for Survival. And uh, and you know, it, it, there was an irony in that, in that some people that were actually in that who were, and it, it was, it was well, at least a, uh, half the people in there were, were veterans of the, the 60s, 70s yeah. sweep of, you know, for a lot of people, that was their first engagement in politics, actually, was the uh, was the anti-nuclear weapons um, kind of cause. Yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, there was something quite poignant about that because, I mean, people were, you know, with with some difficulty, some people walking with difficulty, some people, you know, with, with walking sticks and everything, uh, pegging their way up to the top bits of a completely overfilled venue. I mean, that's not a criticism. It was stop it foo. Uh, so there's a lot of people wanting to come out and make the connections all over again. Um, in and a lot of younger people as well. But still, I would say that the the majority of people were, you know, were older and tr- trying to sort of see where the, you know, where the the trails of that that movement have gone. Um, and some people peeling off actually to go off to the Palestine demonstrations. So it's kind of a very heightened period where people are beginning to make all sorts of connections, yeah. and including in this one, the connection with you know ecocide, with just in the midst yeah. of all this, nothing basically matters apart from spending billions on armaments um, to 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 end up with a face off over a world that is actually in just serious, you know, in desperate, desperate eco- ecological pr- trouble. So, but anyway, well done to the organisers. It was a great day. Yeah, and it's circling back. I mean, this almost this goes back to the King's speech because the uh, Charles began with a reference to the 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 difficulties faced through uh, through Ukraine and COVID. And we spoke about COVID earlier. It was when I on, on my one day when I felt a bit better. I sat and watched the whole day's events where it was Helen McNamara, uh, Lee Kane, uh, the communications director and Dominic Cummings. And the, the things I picked up on were, were things that seemed to be kind of like bypassed by uh, by the media when they focused in a lot of, on uh, to do with uh, Boris Johnson's behaviour. But but Helen McNamara, I thought she talked about the, the macho culture uh, that existed uh, right at the beginning, back when we talked about February, uh, where they would sit and say, the UK is world beating, and they were literally laughing at the situation in Italy, where there were Italians dying through COVID. She said that women were ignored, that they were talked over. And what this led to wasn't, and I thought it was a, a point that she made, which was extremely pertinent, was this doesn't just have a personal impact, but genuinely had significant negative impact on policy the fact that these voices were ignored. 
because they just didn't, you know, didn't think about didn't think about women at all. And they, again, it spread out to some you were talking about earlier as well. It spread out to nobody was giving any consideration, or if they did, they were ignored when they raised the issue of prisons and what was happening to the prison population. No, nothing at all thought about that. Key point, I thought as well, she said that our constitution depends on sensible people making sensible decisions. So that was, a, again, a, a point it's, that was... Yeah. It feels like, you know, I, when they were talking about this and the, the sort of gender, well, basically the pumped up macho alpha yeah. male type, you know, folk who were in charge of all of this in Westminster. Did we not have all of this at the 2008 crash? Yeah. Did we not have exactly this analysis that boardrooms were full of, you know, if you come back to, you know, Fred the Shred and the the behaviour of the Royal Bank, you know, acquiring, you know, dodge, well, as it turned out, unwise investments in this relentless bid to sort of become bigger and bolder and whatever. And that much of the, the blame for this was put in, in boardrooms that had no diversity at all um, in, of thinking or whatever. And I mean, geez, it's, here we are again. And like that's been true, personally speaking, for my entire working life. Uh, you, you can maybe have one woman or one person from some sort of, you know, viewed as minority. Very probably they'll have had to have adopted some of the go faster yeah. attitudes of the dominant, you know, white men to be able to get there in the first place. But, you know, just being the one black, the one woman, the one disabled, the one whatever it is. It's a terrible situation to be placed in and it isn't enough. It just allows box ticking and this rampant kind of attitude towards, oh, you know, the little people There's, you know, they're whining about this. What are they whining about now? I mean, you know, when you hear this kind of utterly dismissive stuff, the only thing that comes to my mind, however, is that. And I, I can't think of a way to put this. It doesn't sound sort of, you know, it doesn't have a, a trace of smugness about it, which, believe me, I don't feel is that generally speaking, Scots took one look at those guys and went, nah. Yeah. You know, we, di we didn't need to go through having to, you know, we didn't elect them in 2019. We, di we didn't elect them in the previous, we didn't elect them forever, basically. But, you know, particularly as, as uh, Boris Johnson swept all before him in some sort of collective blinking trance south of the border, where just, you know, the, the, the sort of flash, almost the kind of equivalent of, of the kind of verbal flash of ankle, you know, when he would in, in, get, get into one of his more ludicrous, classically derived kind of statements or, or you know, daft kind of ideas for something. That seemed to endear him to an electorate that in Scotland just looked at him and thought, don't let that guy anywhere near me. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's it's, it's, yeah. it's just all, when you hear it, you know, when you hear the detail read out of the callous disregard these people had and the sort of entitlement of them, the kind of almost, bo yeah, boys club um, mentality that nobody that, you know, could 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 basically do do much to sort of interfere with. That's that's precisely why so many people now just want out, not 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 just in terms of independence, not just because these kind of politicians managed to get in and get, you know, get power for such a long time, but because a whole set of perfectly intelligent people south of the border elected them. Yeah. And a whole set of perfectly intelligent journalists went along with it, who seemed yeah. to be shocked. Robert Peston, I'm talking about you, to discover the fact this was this was a charlatan government, read by led by a fraud. 
you know, what, what a surprise, but you bought into it. You but bought that's, into but, it. But I think coming full circle back to this, this that, uh, you know, this description of the kind of usefulness of pageantry and the usefulness of all this kind of distraction and the grounding uh, in in history that just s- sops the mind, basically, if you spend too much time looking at it. I think I think that's part of what's been happening south of the border is that people are very swept up. Westminster is their parliament. When we had our parliament, we swept all that stuff away. There's none of that kind of prancing around mm-hmm. stuff. Um, none of the other governments have got prancing around stuff. Anything modern doesn't repeat something created in an era when actually no one had the vote except those enfranchised by corrupt rotten boroughs. Yeah. So that, you know, it's no wonder that, you know, people think, oh, it's just the fabric. It's just this. You can actually take the the ancientness, the pageantry and all the rest of it. And you can still actually operate in your mind um, as if you're operating in a modern democracy. And basically, you you know, you can't. The clue is in the decor. It's not an inevitability. It's not a causal thing, potentially. But all modern democracies have got buildings that try to stress different things and what Westminster the palaces of Westminster remember people the palace of Westminster is trying to remind you is that you are nobody and that there is whole kind of centuries worth of more worthy you know royal people than you who are basically whose values embody are embodied by that place so yeah I mean, and the entitlement thing, well, you know, if you're going to put up with the Oxbridge, and I did go to Oxford, so I've seen them close up. um, If you're going to put up with that Oxbridge entitlement within Fleet Street, the BBC and everything else, well, why should it bother you when you see it lurking around, you know, in government? Whereas I think probably quite rightly here, people are extremely dubious of anything ancient. And this is the shame of it now. Because anything ancient in Britain means something that derived its purpose and its shape and, uh, you know, its, its entire motivation from a period where people were actively excluded, you know, from any participation because we were not worthy. Sorry. long. Way. Yeah. No, no, because it's, it, this may seem a, a, a minor thing, but I actually think it signifies a lot. It just occurred to me, it's not a public gallery in the House of Commons. It's the Strangers Gallery. We're yes. strangers within our own <laughs> parliament. That's I mean, this is bang. Yeah. Oh, and just, the, the, I mean, there's a lot more to come out of the of the COVID inquiry. And I look forward, look forward uh, to Rishi yeah. Sunak and Boris Johnson being skewered by Hugo Keith Casey, who has been absolutely superb and along with the team and trying to get people like Dominic Cummings, Lee Kane, etc. to answer the question. Answer the question. That's not what I asked you. Answer the question. Well, and th- forensic and forensic questioning is brilliant. And just actually, because we won't talk too much about dear old Donald Trump, but, you know, it's oh, good yeah. to see that him also being caught, kind of caught up finally with a woman who is not allowing him to just grandstand. Um, I was listening to a, a kind of an analysis of that, uh, of, of the situation there. And I suppose everybody just lives in absolute fear that inevitably it looks like Trump yep. will win the Republican nomination. However, um, that nomination decision will probably happen around March. Um, around which time one of the many cases that will entail a prison sentence will be heard. 
And uh, on the balance of probabilities, he will be in jail. Yes. Uh, now, I mean, at this point, and this is where, where this commentator was saying, this is quite a kind of problem for the Republicans because they can't stand in the way of him getting the nomination because he's just knocking everybody else off the park. But they will end up with, with a, you know, the, the polling suggests that if he is actually jailed for anything, um, his support will actually fall away. Republican support will fall away. A lot of people will say, it, you know, how does that even work? Because people know perfectly well right now that you know yeah. he's committed the stuff that he's done. But, you know, a lot of it was made of cognitive dissonance and people in denial. And let's face it, given the discussions that we've just had about Britain, there's a lot of it about. Um, but the hope is that uh, if he does indeed get the Republican nomination, that kind of guarantees the Democrats another term. Now, even despite the fact <clears throat> that yeah. Joe Biden's polling is pretty dreadful and, you know, a lot of people just feel he does he, he does come across. We, we've said this before. He's not that much older, actually, than Donald Trump. No. But he just when he's speaking, he does seem to just miss big, you know, just bits mm. of sentence, basically. Um, and yeah, I've heard a lot of people talking and saying, yeah, but forget all that. It's what he's actually done behind the scenes by delegating and by, you know, so there's still a year to go. I mean, we'll wait to see. But I'm still trying to look on the optimistic side because the prospect of Trump back in is just, uh, yeah, it's just horrific. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and the judges already ruled that, that Trump uh, inflated the value of his properties. He's already ruled, uh, the judge has already ruled that that was done. So, I mean, hamstrung on but that. Have they, have, they, have they ruled that it was Trump? I mean, they've ruled that, that his, you know, his company was, he's still trying to palm it off on the accountants. On the, the accountants. Oh, oh yeah. It. And the banks should have done their due diligence. Yeah. You know? I mean, they were it's foolish to accept. Yeah, never. It's, oh, it's never. Anyway, we shall see what happens there. But the, the, fine, the, the final thing, I mean, uh, it was very quiet here on Bonfire Night. I didn't hear a single firework. Nothing happened at all. Unlike, unfortunately, folk who live in Curtin and Dundee and Nidri and Edinburgh, whose lives are being, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm taken aback by it, but blighted by this set of explosions. I mean, it's, it's like nothing that I ever saw when I was a young guy kicking around. You know, we had... I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to get to, I truly can't fathom why people behave in that way. What is it they're trying to express? Is it a letting off of steam? Is it is it a function, as Neil Finlay have said, of the lack of community facilities and the lack of youth, youth clubs, etc.? But it just seems, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, I can sit here in a nice, quiet suburb of Dundee and not be affected by it at all and just ignore it. But for folk living in places like Curtin and Nidri, it ain't fun and it should stop. I, I live beside a, um, a woman in Edinburgh in a flat um, who had, had been part of um, her father had actually been killed by the uh, by the army back in the 1970s in Derry. And I mean, she had to just leave basically because she was like a blooming nervous wreck every every fireworks day. I've got to say, I myself really quite enjoy a good fireworks display. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. sort of an organised one. But like, what's what was happening? Dear knows what was actually happening there. I mean, uh, in these areas, um, it's for some reason it brings back a little bit of another excellent play that um, I mean I've I've now seen two plays produced by the Tron one called Moorcroft 
uh, which was about a football team um, set up yeah. uh, by. It a, it's a real story, basically. Yep. Uh, and and the other one I was at was Nay Expectations. It was the last uh, play produced by Andy Arnold, who's been the director at the Tron in Glasgow for 16 years. So it was a bit of an end of an era. And what a, a hilarious uh, kind of production that was. But coming back to this, the Moorcroft, it's a story of kind of uh, seven pals who, who are living in a scheme. Um, they're beginning to realise their lives are going to be crap um, that they already are. The horizons are kind of almost non-existent. There's just multi-generational, you know, nobody says it this way, but, you know, multi-generational poverty. There's one guy that's got a decent job. The rest are just beginning to struggle. So they put together this football team to try and keep their, you know, to try and keep themselves together, try to keep their friendships going. And in the course of that, they talk so much about there was one moment where there was, I think, a, a reference to something that had happened, some street fight that had happened. And one of them said, well, you know, at least it's something to talk about. Mm. And I mean, again, you know, just take this as read. Nobody's kind of condoning this violence or whatever. But I don't know if you live, you know, when you're looking at this kind of question of multi-generational poverty, this is like four generations of people that have had no jobs and no prospects of them living in ghetto areas of cities uh, with nothing happening in them, with every all that everyone said about com community work spending going down. Um no activities in terms of the sports clubs that the Icelanders brought in to try to cope with a lot of the same, actually just reckless kind of behaviour amongst teenagers. Of course, there has been older people egging them on. But I mean, I, I just wonder how how you can start to really tackle this by thinking that it's just going to be a law and order kind of issue. Yes. Because quite yeah. apart from anything else, you're just chucking more of these kids into potentially prisons that are completely already Full, you know, full and overflowing. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wonder, mean, you know, the thing about having a ban, um, you know, apart from sort of organised displays. I mean, the, the, you know, I don't think Dundee, for example, did have an organised no, display because they nowhere, just, no. don't, they're, you know, again it for all sorts of reasons. So it, I just can't. Again, I can't help thinking that the last time I, I was in Iceland at New Year, and okay, that was a while ago. It was ten years. They go absolutely bonkers at, at New Year, as many countries do, actually, with fireworks. Um, in, in Iceland, it's the it's the uh, mountain rescue that sell fireworks. And that's that actually the fireworks sale funds the mountain rescue to some great degree. But also these guys will go through in detail with people as they're selling the stuff, what they're supposed to do. Um, and pe people basically are very, you know, there's, there's, I don't know that there was any injuries with four days of fireworks being left let off at New Year. It was it's it's a terrible shame if we've got to the stage where we just can't be. Yeah. You know, we have to be kept from ourselves, basically. And yet, having heard some of the people that have talked about this, there are some rockets that are like, you know, it's not your little Catherine wheels no. and your kind of, no, no. you know sparklers and everything they really are massive uh they were talking about the kind of well it wasn't the megatonnage of them but you know the the actual power within them and that's the thing i mean confronted with that it is the closest thing you can possibly get to a game on the streets that you're involved in where you're firing a rocket yeah um it's, it's got to be something wrong with that um so Anyway, well, you know, I see Angela Constance who says she's open to discussions about a ban. But once again, it's not something that Scotland has the powers 
it's not it's not a you know it's not a devolved power to be able to control this apparently on a on a cultural note uh i watched the uh the documentary about the uh release of the the final beatles single now and then and uh, i got i got quite emotional watching the documentary because it was it was the way artificial intelligence is used peter jackson's company that was the when he made the docu the documentary about the the uh, about about the Beatles and he took all footage and linked it together and was able to take audio out and put it voices here and there and, and lift audio out and uh, the, it was a it was an old cassette of uh, John Lennon's uh, singing now and then just the piano but it was tied completely to the piano and they tried to do it a few years back. Uh, when George Harrison was still alive, but they recorded the tracks then. It's now been released, and uh, the the video that Peter Jackson has put together to to accompany it, I I I got extremely emotional watching it. It was just seeing these young men, then and now, now and then, uh, and just listening to what will be the final the final song written by John Lennon. The final, it's the final. That's it. There is no more. But that body of work that exists and the memories that exist for those of us who are lucky enough to live through that time period and uh, to see their development and the joy that they brought to everyone and uh, their li the lives they led, how lively they were, how intelligent they were, how funny they were and how what musical geniuses the Beatles were. And it's a, a very poignant little video uh, if you get a chance to see it. The song, is it great? Is it the best thing the Beatles have ever done? No, but it still made me cry. <laughs> Pat, you are such a sweetie. <laughs> you really no. are. Right. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I will make a note right. to do that. And just yeah. to say on my part, um, if anybody quite enjoys their sort of Nordic stuff and their strong female characters, there's a very good series on Channel 4 called For Life, um, which is well worth a look at. It's streaming at the moment on, on more four, but you can get, you know, if you sit, go to all four and have a look through it. Um, it, it, it in the end, it didn't get commissioned for a third series, which baffles me completely because I think that could have been up there with Borgen and all the rest of them. But still, for life. And just another thing to say is there's a couple of big conferences coming up next weekend. No, this weekend. I'm getting my order of things wrong. Uh, this coming weekend in Perth is the Revive Conference, which is yeah. the one that's looking at the fact that a fifth of Scotland is still a driven grouse moor and looking at land reform as well this year. Um, and Chris Packham will be chairing that, who has had pretty outspoken views about a lot of stuff um, and the climate emergency. So that could be quite interesting to anybody who's, you know, who's interested in those issues. And it's in uh, the Horsecross big kind of conference centre place in Perth on Sunday, I think, or Saturday. But anyway, this weekend. Um, and the other one, the, the next one, the following weekend is the Breakup of Britain conference, um, which has just extended its seating by taking on the uh, balcony area within the assembly rooms in the big venue right in the heart of George Street. So the tickets are still a bit available for that. I mean, we'll put both the thingies in the link, but um, it'd be nice to see you, you know, if you're if you're feeling like pitching up and getting involved again. And I will put those links in the show notes again for everyone. And to continue the Beatles theme, at the beginning, I said hello. And now, it's goodbye. And we'll see you next week, Chums. Bye.